Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Morning, church. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Luke, and I get to serve as one of the ministers here. Uh, several years ago, there was a man by the name of Kevin Tunnell who uh, decided to get drunk on New Year's Eve and then made the unfortunate decision to drive home. And as a result, his Chrysler station wagon slammed into a small blue Volkswagen bug and killed the 18-year-old girl that was behind the wheel. It was a horrific tragedy, a tragedy that is obviously far still too common. And that girl's parents decided that they were going to take Kevin Kevin Tunnell to court. And yet, instead of uh, suing for you know, millions of dollars of damages, which was their right, instead they pleaded for and they got a sentence which was much more painful. Uh, the court ruled at these parents' requests that Kevin Tunnell was to mail these parents a $1 check in their deceased daughter's name every single week. And so every Friday, which was the day that she died, Kevin was required by the court to mail a $1 check for 18 years, which is as long as their daughter had lived. Now, Kevin agreed to that sentence, of course. It seems like on the outset, like he's getting off easy financially. It was going to be much less of a burden on him. But can you imagine the spot that put him in as the years wore on week after week after week? Check after check after check, wave after wave, reminder after reminder of that guilt began to crush him. Wave upon wave upon wave upon wave. And my guess is that there's some of you in here this morning that probably feel like you're in a similar spot, that on the shoreline of your soul, there has been wave after wave after wave after wave of regret and guilt and shame I don't know what it is for you. Maybe it's that lingering sense in the back of your mind, like I haven't done enough. Maybe it's that nagging memory that you've never shared with anybody. Maybe it's that soul-rotting shame from your secrets. Maybe it's just that guilt that, man, I'm not where I should be, and I know I should be better right now. And every single day, you're waking up, and you're writing another check, trying to get better, trying to pay it off. And if that's you, if you've ever felt that today, then today's story is for you. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14 today. If you've been with us very long, you probably know that we've been in this journey through the gospel of Mark this year, where this guy named Mark writes down some stories for us from the life of Jesus. And at the beginning of this year, in Mark chapters 1 through 8, which is the first half, Mark's whole point is to convince you that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the one true king. And then this latter portion of the year, we've been in the second half, chapters 9 through 16, where Mark wants to convince you that the Christ is headed for a cross, that Jesus is the king, but that he's going to the cross. And here we are today. Well, let me set the scene for you. We are very close to the cross indeed. The scene is Thursday night. It is the last night of Jesus's life, and Jesus and his disciples have just left the Last Supper, and they're on a nighttime walk to one of their favorite places, which is a little grove of olive trees right outside the city called the Garden of Gethsemane. And we're going to read out loud most of the chapter today. It's a pretty long chunk of text. What I've done is I've broken it up into four scenes for us to just kind of Help your brain try to keep track of what's going on. Four scenes today, and we're going to do our normal reading rhythm where I'm going to read out loud the words in white, and I'd invite you to read out loud with me the words in yellow. Scene number one here in Mark chapter 14 is Jesus and his disciples in the garden. Remember, it's nighttime right after the Last Supper, and Mark writes this. You will all fall away, Jesus told them. 
For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, let's pause actually right here real quick. You might remember just a few moments earlier at the Last Supper, Jesus said, hey, one of you will betray me. And the disciples are thinking like, one of us? Really, Lord? Like, which, which one's it's going to be? And here we are. And Jesus says, actually, you'll all fall away. And the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, he says, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not Truly I tell you, Jesus answered today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Now, why is Jesus overwhelmed? Well, he knows he's about to go to the cross where he will absorb the full wrath of God. You and I know what it feels like to sin, don't we? And yet Jesus had never felt that before, and yet he is about to become the sin of all mankind, and it's killing him. Unimaginable physical pain, but also unimaginable spiritual pain. And so he asks his friends for help. Jesus said to them, stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They didn't know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. That was scene number one, Jesus and his disciples in the garden. Here is scene number two. Actually, there's one verse right after this I forgot. Um, we'll come back there maybe in a minute. Um, Maybe not. Okay, sorry, I'm, I'm forgetting. Okay, number two, scene number two, Jesus betrayed by Judas. Here's what Mark writes. He says this, just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. 
but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. That's scene number two. Judas betrays Jesus. Here is scene number three, Jesus on trial. They've arrested him in the garden. Now they're taking him to be on trial. Mark writes this. He says, they took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they didn't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days will build another not made with hands. Yet even then, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, here, I mean, the tension is thick. You can cut it with a knife. Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You've heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Now, they're saying he's worthy of death here because in the Jewish mind, he's worthy of death because he claimed to be the son of God. In the Roman mind, he's worthy of death because he claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be a king to threaten Caesar. So then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. That's scene number three, Jesus on trial. Here is scene number four, Jesus betrayed by Peter. Mark says that while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. Hey, you also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow's one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you are one of them, for you're a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately the rooster crowed the second time. And then Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know this man. Those are the last words 
spoken by any of Jesus' disciples in the Gospel of Mark. I don't know this man. What a tragedy. Question for you this morning. What do you do when you feel alone? Here's what I don't mean. I'm not saying what do you do when you feel lonely. I know that loneliness is something that most people have experienced, that kind of need for people. Um, I'm not talking about what do you do when you feel lonely. I actually, just probably because of my personality and how I'm wired, I don't know if I've ever felt lonely in my life. I don't genuinely think I've probably ever experienced that feeling, but I often feel alone. What do you do when you feel alone? When I say, uh, what do you do when you feel alone? I mean, like, when, when life gets hard, all of us as human beings, we have this tendency to kind of cave in on ourselves, don't we? That the harder life gets, the more isolated we feel. Like, I'm the only one. Nobody else understands. Nobody else sees. Nobody fully gets the weight that I have to carry on my own. I'm all by myself. So what do you do when you feel alone like that? Like, nobody else gets it. Well, when you feel alone, you go to somebody who understands, right? Uh, most of you know by now, I have three little boys at home, ages five, four, and two. So I have little boys, and they're also like from my gene pool, and so they're very little boys. They're just going to be vertically challenged for their whole life. They're just kind of doomed to that existence. Feel bad for them. They're never going to have a career in basketball. I'm going to break it to them one of these days. Um, but when I get home every afternoon from work, I open the door, and I just get greeted with these fists. They're just ready to wrestle every single day. But, but when I'm wrestling these three little boys, when I get home from work each day, um, they want me not to stay up here, all big, giant, five foot eight of me towering over them, you know, big and scary. They want me to get down on their level, right? Because I do life on a different plane than my boys do. My boys do life down here, and I do life up here. And so if I'm going to wrestle them, they don't want me to wrestle them from up here. They want me to get down on their level in their world eye to eye to make it more of a fair fight. You guys know this if you've ever played with kids, right? They want you to get down on their level, come into their world. And, and if you've ever spent time around little kids, you're probably familiar with that phrase, same, same. The little kids, they like to be in the same world as you. They want to be in your world. They want you to be in their world. You know, if, if you're wearing a Colts jersey, all of a sudden, what's your kid going to do? They're going to want to go put on their Colts jersey. They're going to say, hey, look, Dad, same, same. And you get a scratch on your arm, and they get a scratch on their arm. Hey, look, Mom, same, same. Like, like we're in the same world. I'm, I'm like you. You're, you're like me. And, you know, you're getting ready for work in the morning, and your kid comes stomping into the room wearing your shoes that are way too big. But they'll say, hey, look, same, same. And here's the point of that. When you feel alone, you can go to Jesus because he has felt what you feel. At the incarnation, when God sent his son Jesus into the world, the amazing truth of that is that God chose not just to stay up there on his level while we're down here on our level, completely separate, completely different from one another. God actually got down on his knees, eye to eye, face to face. He stepped down into our world, and now Jesus can say to us, same, same. He has experienced what we experience. Do you understand the nitty-gritty reality of that? That means that God knows what it's like to have bedhead. He's done it. This means that, that Jesus had pimples as a teenager. He knows how awkward that season is when your voice is changing and, and people don't know, like, am I sounding like my mom? Am I sounding like my dad? You know, 
Jesus has been hungry. He's been thirsty. Jesus has been embarrassed. God knows what it feels like to have a headache and to get stubbed toes and bloody knees. Jesus knows what it feels like to lose friends and to get tired and to feel discouraged and misunderstood. When you feel alone, when life gets really hard, our natural human tendency is going to be to shake our fist at God and to say, you have no idea what I am going through. But the beauty of God sending Jesus to earth is that God can actually look at you and he can say, yes, I do. And he'll point to your wounds and then he'll point to his wounds and he says, same, same. I've been there. The book of Hebrews describes this beautifully about how Jesus can identify with us because he's been through what you are going through. Hebrews chapter two, speaking of Jesus, says this. It says, for this reason, he had to be made like them. Jesus is like you. That's amazing. Fully human in every way. In order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Not only that, but because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he's able to help you When you're being tempted, in your moment of suffering, in your moment of temptation and weakness, Jesus can say, same, same. I've been through that same thing. Hebrews chapter 4 goes on to say it like this. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses. God didn't just stay up there totally removed from your exhaustion, your weariness, your discouragement, and your pain. But you have a high priest, Jesus, who's been tempted in every way just as we are and yet did not sin. So the implications of that, because you and Jesus are same, same, you can therefore approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You can go to Jesus because same, same, he's been there. He's felt what you feel. Uh, John Stott was a scholar in England, and he said it like this. It's a bit lofty language, but, but hang with me. He describes the attractiveness of a sympathetic suffering God like this. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. Frederick Nietzsche, you might remember, was the famous thinker who said, God is dead. What kind of God would die on a cross? And yet John Stott says that in the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to pain? He says, I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries and stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his legs crossed, arms folded, eyes closed, the ghost of a smile playing around his mouth, a remote look on his face, detached from the agonies of the world. But each time after a while, I've had to turn away, and in imagination, I have turned instead to that lonely, twisted tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and his feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow bleeding from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged into God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered into our world of flesh and blood and tears and death He suffered for us, and so our sufferings become more manageable in the light of his. Yes, of course, there's still a question mark against human suffering, but over it, we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, that symbolizes divine suffering. The cross of Christ is God's only self-justification in a world such as ours. 
Those other gods were strong, but you were weak. They rode, but you stumbled to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak, and not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Jesus understands your weakness because he's been there, same, same. For example, just look back at this text, that long text that we read together from Mark chapter 14. Look at the depth of human experience that Jesus has gone through that you will also go through. When you feel grief, when you feel sadness, when you feel despair, Jesus said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. When you are let down by the people that you were supposed to be able to count on, Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed. When you struggle and you chafe against the calling that God has put on your life, Jesus knows the desperation of wrestling with God. When you know what God is asking you to do, like you know the right thing to do, but obedience, actually doing it, is really hard. Jesus sweat great drops of blood, and he prayed, Father, if it's possible, please give me another way out. But at the end, not what I want, but what you want. And when you are tempted to take the easy way out because you're just tired and exhausted and it feels like nobody else has to carry the load that you carry, Jesus is very familiar with the allure of that temptation. When life is exhausted and you're tired and trusting God in the middle of it is so blood-sweatingly difficult that you're the one who's up awake in the middle of the night praying and wrestling with God while everybody else is asleep, Jesus has been there too. And when you pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and God says no, Jesus has been there too. And when you are face to face with death itself and there is no way out, Jesus has been there too. So you can go to him boldly because same, same, he's been there. He's sympathetic, full of mercy for your weakness because he's experienced it also. And yet... If you and I are totally honest when we look at this text here, Mark chapter 14, most of the time the person I identify with in this text is not Jesus. Most of the time in this text, I'm not Jesus and neither are you. Most of the time in Mark chapter 14, I'm Peter. In most of my life, I'm not the victim. Most of the time, I'm the perpetrator. Most of the time, I'm not the victim. Most of the time, I am the betrayer. You remember what Jesus said to his disciples as they're walking into the garden? He says, all of you will fall away. In fact, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning or you're interested in becoming a follower of Jesus, it starts by acknowledging that right there, that I have fallen away. I have betrayed him. I have failed him. One of us has dropped our end of the bargain, and it was not him. It was me every single time. And we get hints of that mindset in our text for the day. Let's circle back to the weirdest verse that we read, starting in verse 52. You guys remember this verse? You might have been thinking, what in the world, while I read through it? A young man, Mark says, wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Now, if you're a rational person, you might be thinking, why in the world is Mark talking about a streaker on the last night of Jesus' life? <laughs> There's a whole lot of details he did not give us, a whole lot of details he chose to leave out. Why in the world did he choose to put that detail in there? It was not just for comedic effect. We don't know for sure, but most scholars think that this young man fleeing naked into the darkness, most people think this is Mark himself. Mark is actually showing us where he was 
on this night. Now, here, here's how we got there. Uh, scripture does tell us a little bit about who Mark is, that John Mark, the guy who wrote these words down for us and preserved them, we know from the rest of the Bible that he was a young man growing up in Jerusalem at the time when all of this is happening. We know Mark's mother was a very wealthy woman because we see her later on in Acts in the Jerusalem area, sharing her wealth and hosting a house church there in her home. He grows up with a rich, hospitable mom around the people of Jesus from the beginning. Who knows? We're just speculating, but maybe, just maybe, Mark's mother was the one who hosted Jesus and his disciples in the upper room for that Passover on the last night of Jesus' life. Maybe that's why Mark is following them through the night to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he himself was there. We don't know this, of course. We know, though, that Mark later on would go to follow the Apostle Paul around on some of his missionary journeys. And so maybe, just maybe, this young man running off into the dark naked, maybe Mark is saying, yeah, I was there too, and Jesus was right. I abandoned him also. We know also from later on in the New Testament that Mark eventually ends up in Rome with the apostle Peter later on in life. And in fact, it's reasonable to believe that Mark gets all the information for his gospel story here, all these stories from the life of Jesus. Most scholars think he got this from the Apostle Peter during their time together in Rome. So that means that when we read the Gospel of Mark, yeah, Mark is the dude who's writing all this down, but he's writing it down based off of the stories that Peter told him. When you read the Gospel of Mark, you're getting Peter's perspective on the life of Jesus. So imagine this scene. They're in Rome, and Peter, the old man, is telling Mark all these stories, and Mark is scribbling them down. Can you imagine Peter telling this story? the story of his own highs and lows on the last night of Jesus' life. He must have been choking it out through tears. You can imagine Peter telling it, can't you? Yeah, Jesus. He said that one of us would betray him, but, but not me, I said, Lord, not me. I'll, I'll never disown you. I, I'd die for you, Jesus. And 15 minutes later, I fell asleep in the garden when he needed me most. And then I woke up, though, and, and, and when Judas betrayed him, man, I was, I was ready to be true to my word. I was ready to fight. I drew my sword. I chopped off that guy's ear. I was ready to die for Jesus. But then, but then when they arrested him, I got cold feet, and I ran off into the darkness just like everybody else. I summoned up my courage, though, and I followed him at a distance. And when they took Jesus into the high priest's house, I, I managed to find my way into the courtyard in there to just try to observe from a distance to see if there was anything I could do to help my Lord in his moment of need. But then a little girl came up to me, a little girl, and I denied him. Once, twice, three times, I swore, I cursed, I said every word I could think of to say, no, me and Jesus, we, there's nothing to do with each other. Jesus was right. We all abandoned him. Isn't it amazing how this is the story Peter would tell, highlighting his own failures all along the way. Because if you're going to follow Jesus, it starts with acknowledging that we have failed him. We have betrayed him. So before you judge Judas, before you judge Peter, before you judge Mark, let's turn the spotlight on ourselves. Uh, last year, you know, I got to go to Israel. It was an amazing trip. I've gotten to show some pictures and stuff since then. And, and, and during the end, toward the end of our time there, we got to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's still there in Jerusalem, a grove of these ancient olive trees right down the hill from the temple. And it was a, an amazing experience to get to, to walk where Jesus walked. And they gave us some time. We had some time to linger there in the Garden of Gethsemane. And so we got to spend just some time praying in the place where Jesus prayed on the last night of his life. This amazing experience. So I'm walking around. I find a place to to sit under one of these olive trees, and just incredible. 
But to be totally honest with you, it had been a really long week, and it was kind of hot, and I was tired. And so we started to pray, and then I started to doze off. And I fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I look at this, and I think, Peter, he needed you. How could you turn your back on him? Ah, oh, but this is all of us, isn't it? We're strong in our faith and we're fervent in our devotion one minute and then the next we're selfish and we're short-sighted and we're fickle and we're weak and I fall asleep in the garden too. So perhaps the best question for us to ask today is not necessarily what do you do when you feel alone, but what do you do when you leave Jesus alone? When you betray him, when you leave him by himself, when you abandon him, when you fall back on your commitment to him, when you fail Jesus, what do you do then? In the year 1990, in Jerusalem, they discovered an ossuary. We have a picture of it. An ossuary is an ancient Jewish burial box. They'd take the bones of a dead person, and they'd put them in this box. And this is a real picture of one particular box they found in 1990. And on the end here, it has the name Caiaphas inscribed in it. Caiaphas was the high priest. In other words, we have the burial box that held the bones of the man who killed Jesus. We know where he's buried. The good news is, though, that the tomb of Jesus is still empty. We're never going to find those bones. So that means that when you and I fail him, when you and I betray him, when you and I abandon him, when you and I make a big commitment to Jesus and then we double back and we drop our end of the deal, the good news is that Jesus is alive, which means there's hope. Because yes, in some ways, Jesus is same, same to you and me. He can look you in the eyes as a sympathetic high priest and he can say, I've been there. I understand your weakness. He is the same to you and I in so many glorious ways. But I'm also thankful today that Jesus is gloriously different than you and I. You know, it's been said before um, that the only difference between you and God is that God doesn't think he's you. The philosopher Blaise Pascal said it like this. He said, God made man in his own image and then man returned the favor. And what that means is that you and I have a tendency to think about God the way we think about ourselves. To think that God deals with relationships the way that you and I deal with relationships and God loves the way you and I love and God forgives and feels the way you and I forgive and feel. But the good news is today that yes, he is same, same, but he's also different. Because Jesus isn't fickle like you and me, is he? He doesn't let go as easily as I do, as easily as John Mark did, as easily as Peter does, as easily as you do. That means that even when you abandon him, he will not abandon you. Second Timothy 2 says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He's not like us. He's so, so much better. And that means that every single time that you've sinned, every single time that you've left him alone, every single time that you've let down your end of the commitment, Romans chapter five says where sin increased, grace increased all the more. That there's always more. And that means that, man, if, you, if you've ever thought writing check after check after check after check, man, I'm here again, man, I've abandoned him again, man, I've let him down again, man, I'm not as far along as I should be. I wonder if this is the time when his grace is gonna run out. I wonder if this is the time that I'm gonna ask for forgiveness and I'm not gonna get it. Yet John chapter one says that no, from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace upon grace. The image there is like the waves on the seashore. They just keep coming one after another after another and they're never gonna stop. 
And you and I wake up every day and we feel like we gotta write checks again, gotta write another check again because I screwed up again and I'm still not who I'm supposed to be. And those waves of guilt, wave upon wave upon wave upon wave upon wave of, of regret and shame and bitterness and betrayal and anger, they keep beaten on the shore of our soul. And yet on top of that, out of Jesus's fullness, he gives grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. And it's the background music of your life and it's never gonna run out on you. And so this morning, if you feel like, man, I wonder, I wonder if he's going to leave me. Like, I wonder if this is the time that I've gone too far. Dane Ortland says it like this in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He says, God is a billionaire in the currency of mercy. And the withdrawals that we make as we sin our way through life cause his fortune to grow greater and not less. It's good news for us today. And so some of you, you're going through your life and you're haunted by your sins and you're well aware of your shortcomings and you're scared that you're not gonna make it and you wonder, how does Jesus really feel about me? And I wonder if I've actually done enough and that is not the gospel. It's not the good news. You're spending your life waking up and writing $1 checks every day, trying to pay off a trillion dollar debt, and you can't do it. You cannot achieve the soul level satisfaction that your heart is longing for on your own effort. You can't pay it. But the gospel, the good news is that Jesus is here. And he said in Mark chapter 10, the reason that he came, he said, for the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a what? As a ransom for many. That means he wrote the check one time and paid for it all because he's different. That when you were faithless, he remained faithful all the way to the cross and he took your eternal insurmountable debt and he paid it in full. And we get to celebrate that every single week together. And I'm thankful today that we get to celebrate that on the one hand, in this moment, Jesus is looking at you and he's saying, hey, same, same, I get it, I've been there. You are not alone. I understand your weakness. And on the other hand, Jesus is looking at us and he's saying, oh, but I'm not like you. Because I didn't give in. And when you were faithless to me, I was faithful to you. And so in place of your sin and your guilt and your shame and your regret and the death that you deserve, I have given you life and joy and hope and peace and forgiveness. So we're gonna receive this together. We're gonna receive this little piece of bread that on the last night of his life, Jesus said, this is my body. And we're gonna receive this cup where Jesus said, this is my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna give you a couple minutes just to be alone with the Lord. And you can bring your weakness to him today because same, same, he's been there. So here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. Pull that deep, dark thing out from under the surface of your soul, that the secret you've never told, that thing that nags at you, the worst thing you've ever done, like the deep, nasty recesses of your heart. Bring them right to the surface and hold them up. And then when you're ready, I want you to receive this piece of bread as a reminder that Jesus knew all of that, he saw it, and he died for it, and it's been paid in full. And then I'll pray and we'll receive the cup together.
King Jesus, we're thankful that we get to come to you today and that you understand. You've walked the roads we walk. You've felt what we felt. We're grateful you didn't give in, that you remain faithful all the way to the cross. And so, Lord, we look on the outside, but you look at the heart, and you know what's going on in every heart in this room. You know the, the arrogance and the distraction and the selfishness and the bitterness. You see the jealousy and the greed and the dishonesty, the weakness, the fear. You see it all. We're thankful today, God, that you are not like us and you do not love as we love. We're thankful that while we were still sinners, you died for us. And that today, not because of how good we are, but because of how good you are, we get to be washed clean in your blood. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We love you. It's in your name we pray, King Jesus. Amen. This is the blood of Christ. In just a minute, we're gonna stand and sing together. And as we do, our prayer team's gonna be gathering around the edges of the room like they always do at the end of every service. And they'll have their green lanyards on. And man, if you're just in a season where you're like, hey, I, I'm just feeling alone and I need some help. That's what we're here for. We wanna walk, walk alongside you. You are not alone. Jesus understands and we as his body wanna come alongside you in those difficult seasons. So man, if you just wanna connect or you just wanna be prayed for, we're here for you today. You can go to the prayer team. But also, let's just call a spade a spade. There's some of you in the room who need to just come and say, listen, I've been, I've been trying to write checks for too long and I just wanna receive the gift that Jesus has offered me of a life that is paid in full, a life of freedom and forgiveness and joy. And we're ready to receive you today for that as well. You can go to the prayer team. Let's stand and sing together, church. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.